Welcome everyone to Black Coffee and Theology. Hey everyone, welcome back to the pod. Hey, party people. I am excited for you to hear this conversation uh, with pastor, theologian, writer, author, husband, Lamar Hardwick. And we talk about his book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. And we get into a theology of disability. We talk about what it's like to be black and have any amount of disability, chronic illness, pain, etc. And it was critical for me to have this conversation because... I really want to start talking about the intersection of being black and disabled, right? And so I hope that you will enjoy and be challenged by our conversation. So sit back and relax and enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the pod and I am joined by a wonderful guest that I have recently become aware of and I'm getting to know Lamar Hardwick welcome to the pod thank you thanks for having me yeah no problem so uh so Lamar is a pastor and author in many things that we're going to get into um phd student many things uh and um i am so excited uh just to dive into more of your story and to talk about uh your experiences uh um, um and among them is disability in the church is something that we're going to be talking about um and your book disability in the church uh ironically is is both the title and what we're going to be talking about so um before we get started uh in that discussion can you tell us a bit about yourself who you are and how you show up in the world what's important to you yeah um so i guess the first thing i should probably lead with is that most people um who kind of followed and watched my work online know me as the autism pastor um ironically i didn't actually come up with that name um the the short story behind that is i started writing blog about my experiences i was diagnosed um late in life i was 36 when i was diagnosed um and so i started to write and blog and there was a whole community of people uh, in the autism community that started to follow me. And one lady, uh, one day direct messaged me and said that, you know, you're like the pastor for the autism community. Cause many of us don't go to church. We've been ostracized. Uh, we don't fit in, uh, churches don't accommodate us or our children. Um, and so it just kind of stuck autism pastor. And so I actually changed all my handles social media handles because it just made it easier for people to find me who wanted to to talk with me um so um that's a large part of my story again diagnosed late although i 
tell people that, you know, around the age of seven or eight, I started to realize I'm really different from these other kids. Um, so I sort of always knew um, and really struggled with a lot of things in life, um, pretended to understand a lot of things, especially socially. Um, and then I just kind of, things just kind of came to a head about eight years ago when I finally decided to try to figure out what this thing was that I didn't seem to be kidding about why people had so many problems with me socially, because I just totally didn't understand why. Um, so that's uh, how I got diagnosed. Um, and since that point, I've just been doing a lot of work on not just autism, but disability, uh, particularly issues of justice as it relates to the church, because I am a pastor. Um, I was a pastor before I was diagnosed, although I had tremendously difficult time finding a church that I fit into for years. Um, so that's been the bulk of my work is trying to help the church understand how to be more inclusive uh, of persons with varying degrees of disabilities. Um, and as you said, I'm a PhD student. I'm actually, this is my second go round doing a doctorate. I did a doctor of ministry. I'm now doing a PhD. Um, author, I've written three books, working on the fourth. And then also, uh, probably most importantly, I'm a husband. My wife and I have been married 21 years and we have three boys and we reside in the Atlanta area. Hey, I love that. I love that. Um, I want to read more of your stuff. I, mm. uh, I, so admittedly, I, I tend to sit down with people that I know really well or relatively well, but with you, I have encountered your story in the most refreshing way. And I, I want to share this because I think it's important. I started to encounter your story um, on Twitter as I started to see your comments and clips of your videos and uh, pieces of your story uh, related to a New York Times opinion um, mm -hmm. article that, uh, that honestly was irresponsible, is my opinion. <laughs> that was really irresponsible. And um, <laughs> this is my yeah. podcast, so I can say that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> This is a safe space. Um, and so, um, and, and, and so for me, as someone who deals with the effects of what it means to be chronically ill and disabled in the church, and, and as a Black man, I often feel alone in my body and in church spaces and I'm constantly fighting to be heard and at the intersection of my identity. And so here I kept seeing pieces of your story and I, I was thinking, where has this person been? <laughs> and um, every comment I saw from you was this breath of fresh air from, for me personally. Um, and I felt so validated in seen and heard by much of your comments. Uh, uh, and so I want to say thank you uh, for sharing so much of your story. And I think those like me um, who have been struggling, especially in the midst of this pandemic, have been so refreshed um, 
especially in light of that that New York Times article. Right. And um, and so I saw you replying and you were vulnerable and you were bold and you're straightforward, right? And so um and so in light of that, so the topic today is disability in the church. And we're gonna get into uh your the current book that I I'm digesting from you, which is called Disability in the Church of the mm-hmm. Vision for Diverse Diversity and Inclusion, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is like so resonant uh, for me. Um, but I want to um, I want to um, bring up a slide that I saw from you that touched me the most um, to open up our discussion. Um, this was the first thing I saw from you. Um, so on a slide in a, a preaching clip, you wrote, COVID-19 has created a distance that is analogous to the distance that the dis- the disability community had already felt. Mm-hmm. So to open up our time together, thinking about disability in the church, and in God in the midst of that, share some thoughts on that, um, some of your thoughts, um, and even why that was important to you to put that up there. Yeah, so that, um, I remember that, because I posted maybe like a 50-second clip um, of a message that I preached over a year ago about this issue and I posted it in response to that New York Times article, you know, as to say, like, I've been talking about this. Um, and so um, that was actually a clip that I preached at my church where um, I was talking about disability in church, what I had written in the book. And we did actually a whole sermon series on on that because, you know, it tends to be the types of things that I talk about because it's a passion it's lived experience and I understand there are many other people who have not had the privilege of having my experience although I had a rough road um but I am a pastor now so I have a platform to say these things um and and to be heard so when I said that um in the sermon series is actually a line in my book that talks about that but my book came out very early like like I had to um submit the final manuscript in like May of 2020 so COVID was still a very new thing and you know my next work I'm going to talk a lot more about it but there wasn't a whole lot to say because I didn't know a lot but what I did notice was the church got very creative in how it provided accessibility so that line in the sermon came from my book saying, I don't know a whole lot about COVID. Here's what I have noticed. When accessibility became a problem for able-bodied people, then the church yes. sort of suddenly found resources. It got creative. It, oh, we'll, we'll start streaming now. We'll make our content accessible. We'll, we'll do different things. But it, but it wasn't until it was a problem for everybody. And so part of that statement too was to say, the same way that when there was a shutdown, we had to socially distance and, you know, for a long time, churches weren't meeting in person and it created a distance between 
pastors and their parishioners. And, and my point was that distance has always been there for the disability community. That's nothing new. They've always had challenges accessing the church. And I wanted the church to realize that the disability community is watching and they're seeing the links you're willing to go to, to make church accessible for able-bodied people. And they're seeing the hypocrisy in that because there are things that the church could have been doing the whole time. So I wanted to tap into that, that feeling that everyone was having, you know, able-bodied people were frustrated. They weren't able to access the church. And my point was people with disabilities have always felt like this. Now, you know how they feel. We've exposed ourselves that we could have been doing better. So what are we going to do moving forward? And that was really the whole gist of that. Um, sermon um, from which you saw that that clip like we have an opportunity here we've exposed ourselves in our lack of creativity our lack of imagination and quite honestly our lack of willingness to accommodate persons with disabilities and this is our opportunity to do something about it yes and you do yeah and and that's why i think as i i cried when i i read and read your book um portions of of your book really hit um in a prophetic sense right because you didn't know how much your book would be needed um, during covid but i think i say it this way um i saw pastors scrambling and even to this day scram you know, trying to figure out ways to still be creative or try to return back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they were, you know, because some people got creative. Um, but what's sad to me is even in the imagining in, and in the creativity, what I have found often is the creativity did not lean into the wisdom of the disabled often. And there's an ache and there's a pain there because of what you're saying is that that what the disabled had to offer is they know about the distance, right? And that's what I'm picking up throughout the thread of your book is that pain. And even um, in your first chapter, you talk about being born this way and, um, there's something, there's a wisdom that uh, those who who are different um, have to carry with them. You even talk about that in chapter four too, in, in some ways, like um, the barriers to inclusion. Like there's something um, that those who are disabled in any way or chronically ill that we carry with us and that if you would listen to us, you, you wouldn't have to do a lot of imagining um, if you would listen. Um, and, and so now in the rush to return back to normal, um, I, I, I feel an ache there. Uh, um, yes, what do you think? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, um, you know, persons with disabilities, chronic illness that have, not been very successful at accessing faith communities like we know the reasons why we're not there and those are things that you could have easily as you like you said access that wisdom and that knowledge 
Um, and, and even and even knowing that even though things came about that made it a bit more accessible for persons with disabilities, it still wasn't because it was a response to the voices of the disabled, right? And I think that's part of the ache too. You know, I didn't get the chance to get into that in the book because again, we were only a couple of weeks in and everybody was hoping, you know, in three weeks we'll go back to normal or, you know, we kept saying that to ourselves and we're two years into it. So, so the part that that hurts is you're doing all these things that one could have been done a long time ago. Um, but, but two, they're not even really being done because these are the things that persons with disabilities have been asking for. They're being done to accommodate able-bodied people. And we have been beneficiaries of some of those things, but it wasn't a response to the need, which, which I think also the ache or the pain there is that even, even with an, and I don't want to say COVID, I mean, this COVID pandemic was a blessing at all because many people have died. So I don't want to misspeak here, but, but even in the opportunity to reevaluate the ways in which church created a distance between itself and the disability community, there's an opportunity to reevaluate it. I think it, it was still missed because that's part of what my challenge was in that New York Times article was that the push was to try to get back to the way things were, which meant you never were doing that to be accommodating to persons with disabilities. You were doing it to accommodate able-bodied people. And now sort of the gist of the article was the measurement of person's spiritual health and maturity meant coming back to a physical space, which meant that you were never really focused on the disability community in the first place. And, you know, the, the pain and the ache there is, like you said, the wisdom was never sought out. Um, and by the way, I think the article is just symptomatic of how a lot of clergy have approached the issue and are continuing to approach the issue. And that's why I spoke up about it, because it wasn't just that one person. A lot of clergy and churches feel that way. Let's get things back to the way they were. Well, this pandemic has exposed that the way things were was, was not right to begin with. And, and still you have an opportunity to fix that and you choose to go back to the way that things were, or you're challenging people to go back to the way things were. And in doing so, leaving out the very community that has always had that distance. So the, part of the challenge too, I think, is that we have to get people to value what we've been saying which is why I posted that clip to say, hey, I've been talking about this. You could have asked a number of people in the disability community, some of which are clergy. Yes, we can be pastors too, right? Yeah. But had she just asked, you know, I think she would have been able to get some wisdom on what you're saying and suggesting is not a good idea because there's, there's, many of us out here who have been saying these things for years yeah so just to be disregarded like that is still a problem and and to be blunt we're we're three years into this thing um mm -hmm. and and i agree with you wholeheartedly to be 
cast off to this to the side i so resonate with your words that we were always expect i mean we knew we were always expendable um mm. but <laughs> i mean we knew it so it shouldn't be a shock to us but i think to be to have it spelled out uh hurt um three years into a pandemic um to see it like oh <laughs> Oh, y'all not playing. Yeah. Usually you have to kind of find it, you know, um, but boom, to have it in lights hurts uh, three years into a pandemic mm-hmm. when the world is in chaos and um, and some of us are multiply marginalized. I think Kwak Puyilan uh, says it that way um, because we might have multiply marginalized identities in addition to our disability right Mm -hmm. so and then and then now we have a barrier to corporate fellowship as well and people are dying of a pandemic i think that is hard right and so i i was glad Mm -hmm. you spoke up and you're naming that which we all know which is this problem of of what does it mean to have communion with one another when you, when we know that the disabled are not considered an, a functional part of the church um, yeah. and that we're not considered Imago Dei um, mm-hmm. and spelling that out. like, um, And that's why I like that you've taken time in your ministry to name our bodies as holy um, as mm-hmm. well and that we are loved by God too. Um, and yeah. what does it mean to embrace us as well? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to know that we are, you know, I often say that, you know, disability doesn't dim- diminish or distract from being full image bearers. And I, and I think that, um, you know, oftentimes that's, that's an afterthought. So I don't know that I've ever heard someone explicitly say people with disabilities don't bear the full image of God, but in practice, the things that are done um, communicate that that's often a implicit bias that's held against persons with disabilities. And, you know, like you said, those who are multiply marginalized, right? So, so they're not going to say, I don't see you being as a full image bearer, but when you, when you do things like that, like was being suggested, you're, you know, all you're leaving me with is to believe that that's how you see people. Mm. So, so you don't have to say it. It's how you so casually are convinced that and and even you know so i guess we can go here even even to say in the article to name the fact that you know what you're suggesting is going to further disenfranchise disabled people and make it seem as though that's an acceptable um you know we're acceptable casualties for returning to what's what's normal so you don't have to say I don't see the full image of God in you. It's what you're suggesting that you leave me no other option to interpret your behavior, but to believe that that's what you think about 
people with disabilities. And, and again, it's not just her, it's, that's pretty symptomatic of the larger church culture, but that's the message that you're sending. And you're not leaving us with any other options to interpret your behavior, but that you don't see persons with disabilities as full image bearers. You, you're illuminating two things. You're skipping ahead. You, you segued yourself. Um, <laughs> you set yourself up for an alley-oop. Um, I'll, I'll go here since you segued yourself. Chapter four is, is where I really wanted to sit. Um, it was the biggest nugget for me that I, I was arrested by. Um, so chapter four um, is uh, called Barriers to Inclusion. And um, whew, there's a lot of nuggets in here, y'all. <laughs> for those who have not read the book, get into it. Um, but um, but I, I want to read you know, talking about our views of the body, views of Imago Dei. Um, and you say a lot about resurrection and our, our views of heaven and how we see disability in this chapter. And you started playing with my own thoughts and I, I had to take a step back and think about what do I think about the resurrection? And um, I want to read a quote here and tell me what you, or th tell me what you think. Uh, based upon your own words. Uh, so you say here, consequently, when it comes to the church, our views of disability and body image are, ex are exposed in the way we interpret scripture. What we believe about the role of disability, the church, and the afterlife become our medium for communicating the beliefs we hold about who belongs and what body standards to hold. My ideas of heaven have always been of perfection. Heaven is the ideal. In heaven, there is nothing that is not absolutely perfect and pristine. Like many people, I have been taught to believe that heaven is the great escape plan. Um, and so you go on to talk about like our views of resurrection in the body. And, um, and then you talk about like, our skin color, ethnicity, language, and culture is in heaven. And you say here, is it possible that our disabilities, which are also part of our human identity and experience will be with us in heaven? And you just pose that question. And I, mm -hmm. um, and you, you just pose it as part of something to reflect on. And, and so give, give us some thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, I, I pose that question because um, ultimately I land on, you know, whatever our ideas of sacred space are and for, you know, so I think we can agree for the Christian tradition, even though there's various different ways of practicing it. When we talk about sacred space, heaven is the ideal sacred space. Like we envision heaven as the place where, if there's if there's a sacred space that we're going to create that facilitates the worship of God, heaven is that ideal. And so I I pose those questions because whatever our ideas of ideal sacred space are, we have a tendency to try to reproduce that here. 
So the challenge then becomes, have we ever asked ourselves, why is it that when we conceive of this ideal sacred space that we call heaven, there typically are no disabled bodies present, right? So if you ask anybody, when you, if you close your eyes and think about heaven and the people that you see there, 99.9% of people will not admit to envisioning people being disabled in heaven. So my point is, is that if that's the case, then it's no wonder why we have problems here on earth, right? Because as we're trying to replicate ideal sacred space, we're trying to repeat what we envision. And so it becomes this subconscious way that we create barriers that that exclude disabled bodies because our ideal sacred space doesn't include them, right? And so I get into, yeah. okay, so where did this new body belief come from? Most of it comes from things that uh, Paul writes in Corinthians. And I, and I really dug through that. And I talked to a couple of New Testament professors because I'm more of a theologian and an ethicist. Um, and what we have interpreted those texts to mean doesn't, it doesn't appear that that's actually what Paul means about we're going to get a totally new body that's not ours right yeah putting on the incorruptible yes right so so my question is if it's true that we are misinterpreting that why do we continue to push so hard to want to believe that the bodies that we have now which in a large way inform our identities to the extent every other physical feature of a person on earth is represented that's why i brought up the you know in revelation where it says revelation chapter seven yes yes yes. right right skin color says every nation every tongue right all identifying marks right so why is it that we believe those things remain intact and then other things that make significantly contribute to how we identify ourselves are erased and my only way of answering that is that's because we have this aversion to disability so you'll be the same black man that you are i'll be the same black man that i am i'll speak the same language all those things that inform my identity but because our ideal sacred space doesn't include disabled bodies you have to get rid of that i asked i actually asked this question in the book so is that a reward or is that a requirement Brother, you are saying some things right now. I and to be honest, when we're speaking about sacred space, <clears throat> many will consider the black body as a disability to be done away with. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I'm teaching on the resurrection, and it 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 literally does not compute for people <laughs> that <laughs> that you would be a different ethnicity in the mm-hmm. age to come. They're like, if you, they might not even have a fully thought out concept of, of the other age, but they're like, well, of course we'll all be white. 
like right it's automatic like, right? like wait <laughs> like <laughs> like i mean i don't know what i believe but i know y'all won't be black i'm like oh yeah. like and so for them the disability would just be being anything other than white um mm-hmm. as the default and so you're saying things about about what we deem as a sacred space and um and I love that you brought up in the book, John chapter 20, and uh, and Jesus asking Thomas to handle him, you know, and to put your hands in these wounds. And, and whatever is happening there, it, it does seem that there are signifiers of, of the of the torture, uh, that there are signifiers of the passion event, that it does not appear that the wounds completely went away of this um, disfiguring event that happened, um, that even in this resurrected body, that there are marks um, left behind, right? And so I love that you bring that up. If we are to think about our resurrection theology, it didn't all go away. <laughs> like it didn't just, right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. God didn't just snap God's yeah. fingers and all of a sudden all markers of the past life were gone mm-hmm. um, to your points that you're bringing up. And so when I'm thinking about that sacred space, I think part of his aversion, I think some of it is fear. And I think with within that is, um, you're right. You're right. I think when we think of the age to come, we don't see um, disabled bodies there. And I think um, that can be extremely problematic then, because what do we do with all the people that are here? And then the the other, the, this other thing I'm thinking, sorry, I'm saying a lot because you're making me think. Um, I think if we're thinking about that as the ideal in the in another age and another time and perfection knowingly or unknowingly we build those communities now um and so we build little kingdoms of that now where we push out what is not perfect um you know and so we're whatever those things that we want eternally we don't have time for we don't make space for we don't consult the wisdom of Mm -hmm. because it's not perfect it's not the ideal it's not what we deem beautiful or wise you know yeah black coffee and theology pod is a production of three black men the podcast about theology culture and the world around us Follow us on Twitter at 3BlackMen. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash 3BlackMen. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod, as well as Three Black Men.